Hello, everyone. I'm Siri Vaith, Executive Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Research Institute, CFRI, and it is my pleasure and my honor to welcome you to our 35th national, or more accurately global, Cystic Fibrosis Education Conference, Focus on the Future. I hope this finds you safe and well during these still very challenging times. All of us at CFRI are delighted that you're here so that we can learn, connect, and engage together as a community. Before I go any further, I want to remind everyone that if you need captioning or translation, the link for this will be posted in the chat throughout the presentation. You can also access this by going to the resources tab at the top of your screen. COVID has dictated that this conference be offered virtually, but the loss in personal contact is balanced with the ability to include more people. This conference is being attended by hundreds of people from around the globe. We have attendees from 48 states in Washington, DC, and 20 countries, including Canada, Australia, Argentina, France, Colombia, Armenia, China, India, New Zealand. And as I shared yesterday, a full third of attendees are adults with CF, a third are family members of children and adults with CF. 20% are researchers and clinicians, and others are a variety of uh, roles, but many from the biotech and pharmaceutical companies. So I welcome you all. As many of you know, in addition to serving as CFRI's executive director, I am the mother of two young adults, my 23-year-old son, Dylan, who does not have CF, and my 27-year-old daughter, Tess, who has CF. Tess was diagnosed in 1995, long before CF was included on California's newborn screening panel. She was five months old, she weighed less than 10 pounds, and she had pneumonia. As many people here today understand personally, the diagnosis turned my world upside down. I fortunately found CFRI shortly after Tess's diagnosis when I attended this annual conference, I think it was the eighth year, and it changed everything for me. Experts from around the globe expanded my understanding of the disease, which I desperately needed, and it gave me hope for my daughter. I also met many others with whom I have developed lasting and deep friendships that have sustained me for 27 years. I found community, what many of us call our CF tribe. For those of you who are new to CFRI, I welcome you warmly. Many people have the perception or misperception uh, that we are a West Coast organization serving a West Coast community. While it is true that our roots are in the San Francisco Bay Area and our office is in Palo Alto, right near Stanford and just down the highway from UC San Francisco, we are a national organization with a global reach. Almost everything we do, every program and service we offer is for our national and global CF community. Long before COVID, we were offering support groups, counseling services, webinars, yoga, mindfulness classes, all online. We'll share more about CFRI throughout the weekend, and I hope that those of you who have found us by virtue of this conference will find many more reasons to engage with us. We are your partners in living, and we invite your involvement. When CFRI was founded in 1975, children with CF were not expected to reach adulthood. It was a time of mistents, manual CPT, powdered enzymes, and few antibiotic options. So much has changed. As medical advances have led to improved survival, the needs of our community, a community which now spans a very broad age spectrum, have evolved and expanded. And so CFRI has in turn evolved to meet these needs. We provide a welcoming place for families facing a new diagnosis, and actually these days, many adults facing a new diagnosis. 
We serve as a community hub for adults with CF, and we offer a range of programs to address mental health issues for all ages and stages. And we constantly seek to identify and address unmet needs. And of course, research is part of our very core and at the heart of our mission. Thanks to our supportive community, we fund cutting edge research across the US focused on right now phage therapy, gene editing, stem cell research, and strategies to combat CF pathogens. Six of the researchers whose work we support are presenting here this weekend. I am so grateful to be part of CFRI during this transformative time. CFRI has an outstanding and passionately committed board of directors and staff, as well as an army of dedicated volunteers from across the nation. We are small, but very mighty, thanks to our collective dedication to the CF community. Yet while we focus on our robust CF pipeline, we recognize that cystic fibrosis remains a very cruel and capricious disease. Tragically, we have lost and continue to lose precious members of our community. Before we move forward with the day's events, please join me in a global moment of silence to honor and remember our friends, family members, and loved ones who did not survive their battles with CF. Thank you. The theme of the conference is focus on the future. This weekend, we'll hear about the many promising therapies in the pipeline. We must remain focused on the need for effective treatments for all members of our CF community. Health disparities continue to play out. The latest CFF figures uh, that just came out this week uh, say that 40,000 people in the US and 105,000 people worldwide have CF. But of course, we all know this number represents those that have been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Many members of the Black, Latinx, South and East Asian communities have rare CF mutations that are not always detected um, through newborn screenings in the United States. Too many people receive a late diagnosis or are forever misdiagnosed due to their race and ethnicity. As an organization, CFRI is committed to raising awareness of the diversity of our community and to be a responsive resource for all. CFRI will continue to play an integral role in the search for new medical treatments and the elusive cure. The innovative research we've supported through the years uh, has solved many mysteries of the disease and has provided the building blocks for some of today's most exciting treatments. I'm proud of CFRI's role in these accomplishments and honored that many people here this weekend have played a part in these advancements. We're able to offer this dynamic weekend at no cost to attendees because of extraordinary support of our sponsors. I especially wanna thank our premier sponsor, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, sustaining sponsor, Genentech, our diamond sponsors, Kia Z USA and Gilead Sciences, and our platinum sponsors, AbbVie and Ionis Pharmaceuticals. They will not hear you clap sadly, but I hope you'll join me in giving them a warm virtual round of applause. Um, I just want to say a quick word. There's so much to see at this conference, obviously these amazing presentations, but please take the time to navigate through, visit the many different offerings that we have. Last night's presentation was so phenomenal. Afterwards, people wanted to keep chatting and didn't know where to go. So we have added, just so you know, in the tab at the top of the screen under community, um, there's one section that's hanging out and chatting, something like that. So between sessions, if you just want to go chat with other people, head there. Prior to introducing our conference MC, I wanna ask you once again for a favor. 
this entire conference is dependent on technology and in particular the Wi-Fi systems of nearly 50 speakers, facilitators, sponsors, and moderators. We really, really wanted to offer a live event because that is part of the magic. Um, but as we've all experienced these past years, and in fact, even yesterday, sometimes things do go awry in ways that are out of our control. Last year, I was having a bit of stress about this issue, and I said this to uh, our dear friend and brilliant CF researcher, Paul Quinton. And he said to me, matter of factly, Siri, things are going to go wrong. But remember, most things will go right. So while I'm an eternal optimist, should we encounter technical difficulties, I once again ask for all of you to have grace, patience, and even a sense of humor. So now, we are very pleased to have our good friend, the incredible Jim Hampton, as our master of ceremonies for the rest of the weekend. Jim and his wife, Marilyn, are the parents of three adult daughters, including twin 29-year-olds with CF. Jim is the operations manager for three San Francisco Bay Area radio stations and a well-known radio personality in our area. He has been involved with CFRI for many years and is a former member of our board of directors. Welcome back, Jim. Thanks, Siri. Hi, everybody. So happy to be back again this year. Honored to be your MC this weekend. Now, I know many of you share my disappointment in not seeing each other in person, but it's my hope that this virtual conference still inspires connection and that with the knowledge you gain from our incredible speakers, you'll be inspired, engaged, and driven by hope. It's things that came out of this conference over the years that has led to some of the amazing drugs. I know uh, Alec and Lizzie are 29-year-olds, have benefited from these new drugs and are doing amazingly well. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I want to review some key points. I hope that you'll stop by our exhibitor booths in the exhibitor hall. We're very grateful to our sponsors and exhibitors for their participation. At many of the booths, you'll be able to chat with company representatives and, and download materials. Uh, we cannot hold this conference without their support, and I hope you will join me in thanking them as an added incentive. When you visit each table, you'll receive points for prizes with the winners being announced on Sunday. If you need help, technical or otherwise, you can click on the info desk icon in the lobby or in the menu bar at the top of your screen. Representatives from CFRI and Virtual Creative Solutions are available to answer your questions. At the end of each session, you'll be asked to complete a very brief survey, literally two questions. Please do so as it not only helps CFRI plan for future events, you gain more prize points. Now, whether virtual or in person, CFRI's enduring rule is that all questions and inquiries are welcome. Please don't hesitate to ask your question in the chat box. And finally, we must keep to our schedule today. So should we run out of time for questions, we'll do our best to get them answered for you after the conference. Now, before we get started with our presentations today, we have a very special video greeting from Dr. Janet Woodcock, Principal Deputy Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. In her leadership role at the FDA, Dr. Woodcock has overseen the review and approval of some of our most pivotal CF therapies. Thank you very much for inviting me to this meeting. I, I really uh, love talking to this community and um, it's always a privilege. 
you know, it has uh, been quite a journey over the years since uh, we've all worked together. Um, I, I was going to give sort of a brief capitulation of my career, which in some ways at FDA has been intertwined with uh, the community that you represent. I, I joined FDA in 1986. Yes, when I was a child. <laughs> but for cystic fibrosis at the time, that was a grim picture. Uh, we had supportive therapies, but we really didn't have anything that could move the dial in a way. And uh, although life expectancy had been prolonged, it was by no means a satisfactory therapy. Um, a few years later, I was privileged to oversee um, the office uh, approving the first biotech um, supportive therapy for cystic fibrosis, which was DNase or Dornase Alpha or Pulmazyme developed by Genentech. So that was a milestone in many ways because it was one of the very early biotech uh, proteins approved and, um, you know, with a novel route of administration and so forth. But of course, it was still only a supportive therapy intended to loosen the mucus plugs and, and help in clearing the lungs. <clears throat> well over a decade later, in 2012, FDA approved the first uh, CFTR modulator, uh, Ivacaft or Kaleidico, as you all very well know. And subsequently, that one was approved down to age six months um, for specific mutations. Um, and that was out of the Center for Drugs, where I was the director of the Center for Drugs at the time. And um, I had had a lot of interaction over that time, leading up to that with the community and the drug developer and so forth. And it was uh, quite an intense time. It was quite a novel intervention uh, that people, uh, it was a really surprisingly effective and, and very positive. Uh, Kaleidico raised those uh, very new policy issues for the agency, and the community may not have been that aware of this, but uh, the question was how to add new rare mutations onto the current indication, which was mutation specific. Now, for fairly large subgroups, it was still possible to do a small clinical trial and actually demonstrate the benefit. Or, or failure to benefit. But for rare mutations, of which, as you know, there are quite a few in the fact that there are a lot of people who have them, even though each rare mutation only may affect a small group of people, it was proposed that an in vitro functional test um, could be used to add these to the label. And this was so novel and so unprecedented for drug regulation. Um, <clears throat> This approach caused a lot of controversy, and I was, of course, uh, on the forefront of trying to get this done. <laughs> and um, and uh, I, uh, I, it was quite a controversial thing that was ultimately adopted. And actually, was a forerunner of things that we're doing now in cancer, and we're doing in many other areas where we use genetic uh, uh, identification of the genetic mutations to target therapies. Um, <clears throat> And by doing this, patients could uh, try an intervention, someone with a rare mutation, have it covered by insurance. And then if it really didn't work for them, they didn't have to continue taking it. Because, but because these modulators had pretty striking effects, 
people are usually able to tell whether it was making a benefit for them. So I think that was uh, a very good advance. But of course, Kaladico and its subsequent um, modulators didn't cover the whole um, range of mutations, as you well know. We had got a larger range of mutations, but of course, we all know that there were patients left behind and there's still patients left behind. And that has to be one of our greatest concerns. Now, this brings me to the role of advocacy and uh, patients themselves in the drug development process. And let's go back again to 1986. Uh, when I started at the FDA then, patient voices were not really heard. It was kind of a holdover of the old time where the doctor knows best and the patient just shows up and follows the instructions, right? <laughs> and um, <clears throat> the advocacy for uh, HIV AIDS, though, in the late 1980s and all during the 1990s, established a new paradigm for patient involvement and advocacy. But it was really slow in adoption throughout the rest of the disease areas. Advocacy groups at that time, before 2000, and, and I think the Institute is somewhat of an exception, but advocacy groups generally spent a lot of their effort supporting patients and their families. And of course, that has to be a primary thing that everyone does. And they also would lobby Congress for uh, more uh, attention to the disease and specifically for more NIH research. And of course, those were very helpful as well. However, um, most uh, groups really didn't pay much attention to the pipeline and the drug development process or intervention development process itself. And they were just sort of surprised when things came out, or maybe they heard about them at the last minute they were coming out. And it took some time for the advocacy community and the development community product development community to uh, get together into what I think is now a very productive relationship amongst um, developers of medical products, advocacy, and the FDA, because we all have a stake in getting good products out there into the hands of doctors and patients. Now, what were um, really milestones along the way in this journey to where we are now, which I think is a very positive place, well, first of all, as I said, HIV AIDS really set a bar. It was a new uh, way of doing business. They were very vocal. They were a strong community. Um, uh, the cancer community came in next um, and really started focusing more on development. They were primarily before focused, I think, on um, you know, advocacy and supporting, of course, families. Um, <clears throat> Uh, organized advocacy communities like multiple myeloma, um, cystic fibrosis, and ALS began focusing on development pipeline and considering investments to stimulate development and guiding development and actually actively participating. And that, that early engagement has really, I think, paid off for those communities. That was really worthwhile. <clears throat> now, but sometime during this uh, FDA at my behest, when we uh, negotiated another a round of the user fee programs, proposed patient-focused drug development, okay, as a uh, project under PDUFA. 
um, that would be uh, funded by industry. And this was accepted by the industry and ratified by Congress. And so it was put into the user fee agreements. And this was really the beginning of the voice of the patient efforts uh, and incorporation of patients into trial planning and endpoint development and all the other activities now that advocacy is involved in. But it was quite foreign to some at the time, including inside the agency. <laughs> so, like any change, these things uh, take a while. And, and some advocacy groups, you know, are still focused on their traditional roles and haven't entered this space, but others are really uh, uh, full on. Now, the uh, patient-centered Outcomes Research Institute, or PCORI, was established during this time by Congress, and it began an effort to define patient uh, centricity in clinical research in general. And they spent a lot of money and research uh, time and effort in, and procedural effort in figuring out how to engage patients in every single part of research planning, all the way from deciding what kind of pro, uh, project should be focused on, uh, to vetting proposals, to really getting rolling up their sleeves and dealing with uh, the clinical trials, because uh, patients have a lot to uh, contribute on what can actually be tolerated uh, as far as a visit, you know, and so forth, um, what works for them uh, and would keep them in a clinical trial versus, you know, what a researcher might think and so forth. And then, of course, the outcome measures, which is a big uh, part of the patient-focused drug development process. So it has been quite a journey but it um, is by no means, I think, completed. But um, many trials, I, most of the trials that I, part, you know, I'm on um, trial oversight boards and advisory boards and so forth, almost all of them have patients in planning and in oversight. And this really is a triumph because the quality of these efforts will greatly be improved. And I think PCORI has done an extremely good job too in really setting the standards there. Uh, but I can't tell you that patient input is just invaluable at every step of the way. Now, FDA has found the patient-focused drug development meetings to be very uh, impactful. Uh, the reviewers sit in on these and they begin to realize things. I had. One ophthalmologist tell me, she said, I sat across from these patients, you know, she practiced for 25 years or whatever, and she's, or maybe a dermatologist, I don't remember, but she said, I never knew. I never knew what their lived experience was like until I went to one of these meetings. So it just shows how important um, this input can be, even though it can be difficult and, and sometimes, you know, uh, what are your outcome measures? How do you measure this? All these different problems, but really the, making a center around the lived experience of the patients is just so important. And so, of course, we've had the patient-focused drug development meetings, and we've had uh, externally led meetings, uh, which are very important. And I know that uh, CFRI hosted one in 2018, and congratulations. But they really are impactful. <clears throat> now, FDA has gone on in this journey to work on developing both guidance for those uh, advocacy groups who wish to 
actually develop instruments uh, to measure patient preferences or patient um, reported outcomes. And I think this is very important work. Again, it's more technical. It's going to have a lot of bumps in the road, but it's the next step in progress and really uh, integrating patient input into how we think about interventions and whether they're working or not and how well they're working uh, and what the burden of the intervention is, which is often something people don't think about too. So the work goes on. <laughs> Now, I said at the beginning that uh, some patients are still left behind, and uh, the CFTR modulators are effective, but they don't uh, cure the disease, okay? They are very uh, useful. New approaches, such as gene therapy or other RNA or DNA uh, technologies are being developed. None of these are really um, mutation-specific or most of them are not. And so they really provide an opportunity uh, for everyone with uh, cystic fibrosis to uh, you know, be included in, in a treatment. Or they could be, if they are mutation specific, they're, uh, they're very uh, individualizable. And so you'd have to like make us one for a single person. But we have seen this and we've actually written guidance on what we call N of one studies, where an intervention is actually tailored to a single individual who has a unique genetic um, mutation that's causing a problem. So people should, this is the future really of medicine and people should, I think, take hope in this. So we need to press forward with advocacy, with research and development uh, so that everyone uh, can benefit because the stakes are very, very high as people's lives are at stake. We, uh, the technology is developing. And if we really press forward, both in advocacy and trials and, and um, you know, in regulation, advances in regulation, we can overcome this disease. That is in sight for us. And, and I think that's a very exciting um, viewpoint for me from what I what happened in 1986 when I joined the agency to where we are now with dealing with cystic fibrosis. So let's work together, uh, continue to do the good work you all are doing. Congratulations on all of it. And let's all mutually make sure that no patient is left behind. Thank you very much.